Well, hello, everyone. This is John Barron with Poets and Quants. Welcome to Business Casual, our weekly podcast with my co-host, Maria Wickvilla and Caroline D.R.D. Edwards. This week has been quite an interesting week in the field of MBA admissions. On one day, we had the announcements from both Harvard and Stanford that they were going to lose their chief MBA admission officers. How rare is that? It's like lightning strikes. And not only did they announce their departures on the same day, they also outlined their same timetables for their departures. Both Chad Losey, the managing director of MBA admissions and financial aid at Harvard Business School, and Kirsten Moss, who holds a similar title at Stanford Graduate School of Business, will be leaving their jobs by year end. So I want to ask, uh, let's let's go to the former head of admissions at NCOD for her thoughts about why in the world would these two people leave on the same day and on the same timetable? And what does it say, if anything, about MBA admissions at the top level these days? We could speculate that there's something fishy going on, given the the bizarre timing. But I think that most likely it's probably a coincidence. It's interesting that we have seen quite a changing of the guard in MBA admissions over the past few months, right, With, with several key staff resigning from other schools or moving on to other positions for MBA admissions at top schools. You know, I think it's that the pandemic was an extremely stressful period for MBA admissions. You know, traditionally, MBA admissions is not a business that changes incredibly rapidly from one month to the next, right? I mean, it there has some predictable cycles and there are, you know, there are changes and trends that that come and go, but it's not something that is subject to such rapid change as many other industries. And the pandemic was was a huge shock and and made life very stressful with uh, the sort of uncertainty in the pipeline. And it's still a difficult time, right? Um, We've come out of the pandemic, but now there's a downturn in application volume. So I think that, you know, it it has been a challenging period. And also, whilst working in MBA admissions is is fantastic, and I absolutely loved working at INSEAD. And, you know, when I was thinking of moving on, I looked at other opportunities in the school and there was really nothing else that I wanted to do at business school, right? I mean, to me, MBA admissions is is such an exciting position to be in. And I really loved the, the different aspects of the role. But there can be stresses. And I would imagine that, you know, those could be amplified at a school like Stanford, GSB and, and HBS, because you do have so many stakeholders to deal with. And um, it's a very visible role and such a critical function for the school. And there are lots of stakeholders, faculty, alumni, current students, et cetera, corporate partners who have who all have different views about what you should be doing it, what you should be doing and how you should be doing it and and get cross when things change, and then other people get cross if they don't change. And so, you know, they all come knocking at your door and that can be difficult to deal with. And I do think that, you know, whilst you note in your article about this, John, Kirsten was someone who was very visible in the market and very happy to engage with the public. 
um, Chad was someone who's much more discreet and might have felt more uncomfortable in a role that has such high visibility and requires dealing with so many different stakeholders. And so perhaps the role that he's going into, which may be a little bit, um, you know, relates more to his previous experience in consulting and perhaps has doesn't have the same requirements to of organizational politics and and stakeholder management that might be more comfortable for him than than such a high visibility role at at HBS. Yeah, that's that's really a good point. And uh, I should point out that Chad Losey is going to Yale University to work in the provost office in a strategy role, which of course is more of a behind the scenes kind of job as an advisor to the provost on you know, big time strategy for the university. It's a great job. And it also follows very clearly uh, his desire to do that because, you know, while he was managing director of admissions at Harvard Business School, he was also earning a doctorate in higher, higher education management from the University of Pennsylvania. They have a rather unique program um, that in fact, the dean at uh, the Darden School at the University of Virginia went through to help him transition from McKinsey, where he was a senior partner, into academia. And as you pointed out, there's been a lot of turnover. Kate Smith at Kellogg, Amanda Carlson at Columbia, uh, Sujin Kwan and Diane Economy at uh, Michigan Ross, now Chad Losey and Kirsten Moss. It's like no one wants this job. Maria? <laughs> We've still got Blair. We st- <laughs> Blair, we still got Blair at Wharton. God bless you, Blair. Um, Absolutely. L- <laughs> at least one of the schools is keeping Only amazing Blair. an amazing oh. head of admissions. Uh, and we and Sherry and Sherry is still at Sherry Hubert's still at Duke. So we, there's still some and yeah, anyway, there are lots of people that are incredible in this job. But yeah, it sure does seem like a a, a whole bunch of people are resigning. Um all at once. And and it's so interesting to speculate, right? Because I, I it's I don't know. I feel like to 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 sort of build on what Caroline was saying, yeah, I think that it's probably a job with so many different stakeholders, but I can't help but wonder if you also feel like your hands are tied in some way, where if you come in and you're like, I've got this great idea, guys, like let's you know, get rid of the typical interview and replace it with, you know, a team-based discussion. Maybe some schools are like, okay, cool, let's try it. And maybe other schools are like, no, like, this is the way we have always done admissions. And, you know, I almost, I wonder sometimes if people do want to make changes in the admissions process and their hands are tied. Or like Caroline said, maybe it's, you you know, we want you to change more and you're not changing enough. And I just, I'm sure it's probably a lot of politics. And I also wonder if after a while, I mean, I think what's interesting about the job that, that Chad is taking is, is that I, yeah, I wonder if it like you deal with so many, he's going to be dealing with a lot of different strategic issues that the entire Yale University as a whole is facing that might be a little bit more um, variety. I, you know, I wonder if as the head of admissions, like after a certain point, you're like, okay, it's this again, like, okay, the same, the same kids, the same resume, the same person who's been at Bain for two years and then did private equity for two, like, there's a part of me that wonders if after a while you start to, you know, obviously there are going to be unique people in every applicant pool, but after a while, I wonder if the job just sort of gets to be like, okay, here we go again. And if that's the case, if there might be, especially for someone like, you know, for like Chad, who is, who is young uh, and driven, you know, maybe after a point, he's like, okay, you know what? I got this check. You know, <laughs> do I understand admissions? I understand admissions check. I got the admissions thing down. Now let me look at how I can make a bigger impact on a university 
as an institution as a whole, looking at other topics. True. He's, he's going to go to a great job. I, I also wonder, you know, how aggravating is it to get the call from the senior partners at McKinsey, Bain, BCG, Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, JP Morgan, uh, who say, hey, I recruit all these students. I wrote this recommendation for this incredible person and you rejected them. How in the hell could you do that? And, and so you got the pressure from a major employer, from a very senior level uh, executive who obviously wrote a, a very positive recommendation for a candidate that they believe in. And you can't accept all of them. And you're trying to craft a diverse class, and, uh, but you're going to catch hell for it. And, and, and you got to entertain that phone call and you got to appear understanding and sympathetic. Caroline, I imagine you were in this position uh, at times when you were head of ad- admissions at NCON. Yeah, for sure. There are recommenders who think that they know who you should have taken. Um, and it could be that you've taken someone from their firm, but not somebody else. And they think that you took the wrong person, right? That can happen. But they don't necessarily have the full picture, right, of, of what admissions is evaluating. They have the perspective of the current employer, and they see that person in a certain context, but they don't have the same um, information necessarily that the admissions office has. And also, you know, at a school like INSEAD, you get pressure as well from the admissions interviewers because there's 3,000 volunteer alumni who who do um, the, the interviews at INSEAD. And I mean, that's not the case at Harvard, but it is the case at Stanford GSB. And they can get very upset as well if you don't admit someone who they recommended for admissions, right? Sometimes they feel like they are the gatekeeper and they're not, right? It's one it's one data point that is being evaluated. I mean, we look at a lot of information from from the the discussion that transpires from the interviews, right? But it's that's one part of it's one piece of the puzzle that is evaluated by the admissions committee. And so the interview is not the final deciding factor. But sometimes the interviewers think it is, right? And that can be complicated at schools like INSEAD or Stanford, where the the alumni are so heavily involved in that process. And at many schools, you have what is often referred to as the dean's list. Now, whether this is apocryphal or not, I think it does exist at many schools. It's basically the dean sends a list to the head of admissions, and there are people on there he wants into the class. Now... If, if it's Phil Knight's son or daughter at Stanford, or if it's Michael Bloomberg's son or daughter or nephew, and they're on the dean's list, you know, and, and you just got to swallow your pride and let them in because that's the game. Let's face it. Yes, people are evaluated on the merits, mostly, um, but there are some where I think it's fair to say that's not true at all. And, and that's, that's a kind of additional pressure. And all of this has occurred also at a time, which you mentioned earlier, uh, through the pandemic, which has been a difficult time. I mean, at Harvard Business School, Chad made what I considered to be a courageous decision to allow unlimited deferments of anyone who was accepted in 2020. And so many people uh, accepted that, uh, basically, that invitation that he enrolled the smallest incoming class at Harvard Business School in decades. And then uh, when the worst of the pandemic was over and those deferrals came to roost, 
he had to enroll the two largest incoming classes in history um, this fall and last fall, uh, which puts a lot of pressure on the faculty, on the curriculum, on the schedule, on the facilities. Um, and obviously is going to make some people less than happy when you have to teach over a thousand MBAs incoming instead of 900. Um, so there's all that. And then there's the increased pressure on diversity and inclusion uh, with, with, you know, whatever the result is, there is no doubt that this has become a major priority for U.S. business schools in particular. Uh, Stanford has taken a, a really leadership approach in this field uh, by publishing annual reports about their progress on this dimension, the diversity dimension. Uh, Harvard has taken a lot of lumps and a lot of criticism from former Black African uh, faculty members who have basically lambasted the school for not doing enough. Um, so, you know, there's there's this pressure from all these different quarters. And I can imagine that, you know, you can only read so many applications and feel good about it. Maria, do you have some other theories as to why we would lose two Harvard and Stanford on the same day? You think they were talking to each other and saying, hey, let's do this together. Right. Like Thelma and Louise. Um, (laughs) Driving off into the sunset onto new, exciting adventures, except it's not a cliff. It's a better job. No, I, you know, I think that I think it is just a, a completely weird coincidence. You know, I can't imagine that the two of them have enough free time on their hands to just be. I mean, I'm sure that they probably, you know, I would think that they might maybe talk to each other from time to time. I know that I have, I have friends, I have friends who are other admissions consultants and I know that we regularly will um, at least vent to one another sort of off the record about peculiar stresses of the peculiar thing that we do for a living. Um, And so I'm sure that admissions officers themselves might sort of secretly vent to one another about, you know, this donor is pressuring me to take this candidate and I can't stand it or who knows knows what. Um, but as ter- in terms of like saying like, okay, I'm going to quit on this day and you're going to quit on this day and we're, you know, let's hold hands and jump together. I just, I don't, I don't know that that necessarily happened, although that would be, that would make for like a good script of some sort. Um, no, I just, I just think I, you know, my, one of my takes on it was that I think that now that I think that the admissions, um, the admissions process was changed so much by COVID to a point where I think a lot of the previous um, sacred cows in admissions that are sort of unquestionable, like, okay, you have to send your staff out to attend these MBA fairs all over the world. And, you know, you have to spend hours in a hotel ballroom behind your little table with your little brochures and you have to send people to every city. And, and, and maybe like during COVID that all of a sudden you didn't do that anymore because you didn't have, you couldn't do it. And maybe now as the world is sort of getting back to quote unquote normal, Maybe, I don't know, I would, if I were in their shoes, I'd be like, well, wait a minute. Like we just proved for two years that we didn't have to. And and now you're sending me out on the road again. And, you know, like, don't get me wrong. Kuala Lumpur is a wonderful city, but I, you know, I, I don't, I kind of, you know, I kind of want to be with my kids or I want to be with my family or my pets or whatever it is. And so I, I almost wonder if part of it is sort of looking at the world going back to quote unquote normal and seeing it with sort of a sense of maybe dread, but I'm, I'm also probably just projecting entirely. <laughs> when it comes to that. I, I think that's quite possible, though, that in the emissions team, there is sort of a, um, a a big sigh at the thought of all the travel starting again, because it can be 
you know, but it can be exhausting around the glo- global travel. Um, and it's not the only industry, it wouldn't be the only industry where there's resistance to going back to life how it was pre-pandemic. So um, it may not be the case, particularly for Chad or, or Kirsten, I don't know how much travel they did individually, but I would imagine that in some admissions teams, there are a lot of discussions happening right now about how this is managed going forward. And and um, there may be some there may be some resistance to to going back to how things were pre-pandemic. And Chad is a family man. He has four sons, uh, all young. Uh, he himself is pretty young, uh, having gotten his MBA from Harvard, I think, in 2013. So he, you know, the demands of the job are pretty serious, even if you're not doing a lot of traveling. I mean, I wonder how many hours a week you put in, Carolina and NCIAT. I bet you it was 60 to 80 a week. Easy. Right. In that job? Well, it depends on, you know, the, the deadlines and so on. And NCIAT always has deadlines. <laughs> yeah. It, it, yes, it, it does. Um, and so, yes, it can be extremely demanding and it's not all, always the most sociable hours for sure. I mean, I was quite glad at NCIAT that we did have several deadlines because it spreads things out more over the year, whereas at schools, like Harvard and Stanford, where, you know, Harvard doesn't even have the round three, right? But um, the pressure is all in a more concentrated period of the year. So I would imagine that that is more challenging um, in some ways than than my life was at INSEAD, where we had, um, you know, the now the school has eight deadlines, right? And we used to have seven deadlines, and it's been extended to eight. So but I, I like to be able to spread things out um, more evenly over the year because it's sort of a, a constant process rather than this build up and then this crazy, overwhelming um, volume that you have to deal with in a very short period. Let's talk about the impact that both of these officers had on admissions at their schools. So one of the things that Chad did early on was eliminate round three deadlines. And, you know, the argument is that you get very few people and it doesn't really matter all that much. Uh, I disagree. I think Chad was, um, by eliminating round three, he lost access to a lot of exceptional candidates who, for one reason or another, couldn't apply in round one or round two and therefore applied to other schools. And he had lost a chance to get some very good candidates and he lost it to, to Stanford, to Wharton, to Kellogg, to Columbia, to Chicago Booth, MIT as well. Uh, I don't think that that was a smart decision. This is me, you know, being the Monday morning quarterback, admittedly. But I, I think that that was really not a great idea. The, the other thing that I think he did that was very stellar, and it occurred in the past year, and sure, it's a decision that really had to be made by higher ups, is that Harvard Business School made a commitment to provide uh, an MBA for free, all costs covered for 10% of its incoming student body every single year. Obviously, that 10% uh, is composed mainly of, uh, you know, deserving students who really need the money to take advantage of the education. On the plus side, that's what I would put there. Now, I wonder, in terms of actual admissions, and the essays being required, I don't think there were really any change of, of substance other than the fact that he imposed a word limit on the one essay that Harvard has, which is tell us more about yourself that we may not know uh, based on the application that you filed. 
Am I missing something? Not that I can think of. I, I do think, as you mentioned, round losing the round three, you may have regretted that, especially with the pandemic, right? And that it was probably why they had to reduce the the class size so much because so many schools were still accepting people very late in in 2020, and Harvard wasn't able to do that because they had lost that round three. So I yeah, think that probably. Many- Including schools, right? And uh, Wharton extended their deadlines. Kellogg extended their deadlines. Some of these schools were more willing to experiment with test optional policies during the pandemic when it was difficult to take a test. Harvard did not. Uh, Stanford did not either. And as you mentioned, I think it's great for the for the students that they gave people that flexibility to defer, and therefore they managed they cut they had to cope with that fluctuation in class size and you know that was as you say quite a brave move at the time and other schools weren't doing that and other schools were criticized by um, students and admits for digging in their heels and being less flexible at a time when admits and students were suffering with the the consequences of the pandemic but as you said, it does create a huge number of logistical challenges to have that class size fluctuation, right? Schools, uh, program management, the faculty, um, all the logistics, it makes everything so much more complicated if you have a lot of fluctuation in the class size. Career services, recruitment, everything. So so I would imagine that that was challenging to manage and possibly it wasn't terribly popular internally. Yeah. Uh, Maria, uh, from your standpoint, what about uh, Kirsten Moss at Stanford? Yeah, I, I'm pretty sure that Kirsten, one of the things she introduced was the uh, the optional three essays in which, as an applicant, you can submit anywhere between zero to three <laughs> additional little mini essays about leadership impact that you've had. And I think that that was a really smart move, although I'm sure it you know gave them a lot more work to do. But I think prior to that, when it was just primarily what matters most to you and why, and then the why Stanford question, I think a lot of people then felt a lot of pressure to make what matters most to me be my work accomplishments. Because I would think, well, this is my chance to show off how amazing I am, and there's no other place in the application for me to do it. And so I suspect that by giving people this outlet, kind of like this valve <laughs> in which like, okay, don't worry, you can you can put your, you can tell us all about your leadership, just put it over here. I, I like to think that that made a little bit more room for the what matters most answers to be more authentic and more reflective and not let me use this as like a Trojan horse to try to sneak in what my accomplishments are uh, by pretending that it's some sort of deeply held value. But really what I'm trying to do is to get my accomplishments across. So I, I thought that that was a really, a really big improvement to the application because I, I think it also gave some of the some of the applicants to Stanford you know, I think I think some of the people who apply to Stanford might not necessarily realize it. I mean, I think a lot of people apply who aren't necessarily qualified. But I also think conversely, there are some people who are super qualified who might not realize that they're qualified. And I think forcing themselves to write a couple of specific little essays about leadership makes them in some cases realize like, oh, maybe I actually have maybe I actually have had quite a bit of impact on my community and my my company and the world already. So I personally have seen that. I've seen some people get some more confidence in their candidacy once they sort of lay out those three essays. And they're like, oh, wait a minute. And I'm like, see, you are amazing. And they're like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And it does coincide with her uh, 
you know, passion for leadership that she has worked on before at Egon Zender, the executive search firm, and elsewhere with her own consultancy before uh, returning to Stanford in the admissions role. And uh, it is apparently what she wants to do in the future. You know, a spokesperson at the school, when we asked, well, what's the reason for this decision, simply said she wants to pursue her passion, and that is leadership. So it, it makes sense that she would have added those questions and and I think it does provide more insight into um, uh, an applicant's motivations and preparedness for uh, a rigorous and elite MBA program. Who is going to replace these two people in these two very important jobs? Any guesses? Maria, let's start with you. I don't know who will, but I have some ideas of who I'd like to see. Um, well, okay. <laughs> okay. Well, so first of all, I think one of the one of the nice things about HBS doing so much of its admissions internally and like in for example, as we mentioned before, the interviews are all done by internal staff, is that I think that I would like to think that they train up. That means that they're instead of having like, you know, two hundred potential interviewers by only having like a smaller group, I like to think that any one of those folks could presumably kind of step in in an interim role if needed. So there are a lot of folks that have been on the admissions team, you know, for for years, right? I mean, she one lives on the West Coast, but Hillary Kaplan Samorjai, for example, I don't know if you've ever met heard her, heard of her or met her, but she's on the West Coast. She does a lot of the West Coast interviews. She's been with HBS for I don't know 15 years or so. Um, I don't think she would move to Boston. Uh, in terms of, I would love to see Sherry Hubert from Duke. Uh, you know, I have I've encountered Sherry when she was at Georgetown and when she was at Duke, she hosted the AGAC conference a couple of years ago before the pandemic. Um, and I think she has a really I think she's very, very good at what she at what she does. And I would love to see her bring her perspective and the lens um, and her thoughtfulness to the to the role at HBS. And in terms of GSB. I don't know, but maybe, I don't know if you guys know, so Luke Pena, who used to run admissions at Tuck, is now, he went to go to Knight Hennessy, which is a very specific sort of fellowship that Stanford Business, that Stanford offers overall, and a lot of business school students happen to get it, right? So it's a very prestigious fellowship um, for graduate study there, and I, I almost wonder if maybe he, that was sort of a stepping stone, and maybe he could transition over, and, and uh, maybe we'll see Luke, Luke Pena again. Yeah. And he's he's also very good at being public, right? When he was in charge of admissions at Tuck, he was active on social media. He was very open, working with, yeah. So he would he would I think he would fill those shoes. Um, not that anyone could replace Kirsten, but he, I think I think he has the right sort of public persona, perhaps to 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 take that role. Those are really good guesses, Maria. I have to say, you could have just saved the, you know the search committees a lot of time. Please send check to Maria Wickvila. Exactly. My exactly. address. I take Venmo. <laughs> Let me also just say I want to, you know, give some credit to both uh, Kirsten and to Chad uh, during their time in the job. Six and a half years for Chad, uh, five and a half years for Kirsten. Uh, they did in improve the uh, percentage of women. Uh, enrolled at, at uh, both Harvard and Stanford. Uh, Harvard, it went from uh, 41% to 46% uh, this year. Uh, Stanford, it went from 40 to 44% last year. Uh, Stanford's class profile doesn't come out for another week. Um, 
I imagine we would see even uh, another improvement in that 44%. Uh, at Harvard, with the 46%, that's a record number uh, this year. There's also a record number of international uh, students in the class at Harvard, 38% uh, this year compared to uh, 34% uh, before he took the job. Um, and then you have, you know, at, at uh, Stanford, the international crew is much higher, 47% last year compared to 40% when Kirsten took the job. And um, I would suspect that the 47% will actually increase as it has at all schools uh, because of the decline in domestic apps. So, you know, it's, um, you know, this is a tough, grueling job. Uh, there, as we pointed out, there's a lot of pressure on you. You you disappoint more people than you than the numbers of people that you make happy because, you know, at Stanford, 94% of the people who apply are getting turned down. At Harvard, it's roughly 90%, 89% getting turned down. Uh, and then you have those damn rankings. The rankings have worked in the favor of in these recent years. Harvard has been a uh, a laggard uh, for given its prestige and reputation and rankings for whatever that matters. But it may matter to people who are dual admits because Stanford tends to win over Harvard and dual admits. Uh, and that wasn't always the case. So uh, really tough jobs, tough times. Um, I think one thing that can be said for sure is that the quality of the students that both Chad and Kirsten admitted over their tenure uh, as the heads of admission, uh, terrific, fantastic quality, exceptional students, uh, and great graduates. And that's something that doesn't tend to change, you know? I mean, when you've got a brand like Harvard and Stanford, how do you go wrong? How do you mess it up? I don't think you can, really, you know? Maria, you can't mess that up, can you? Are you asking if Maria could mess up? I guess she could if she really tried. I mean, Caroline, is, is that think? a dare? Is that a bet? Let's see. John, Maria, I could... Maria's a Challenge accepted. Idiot. She's on the West Coast. Challenge accepted, Wait, I John. You, I will. You could, you could take <laughs> over that role and do a hell of a job. And Caroline, maybe you want to get back into the in, into this role yourself. Right, you know? just down the road. Yeah, I know yeah. you live really It'd be close. A very, very short commute. I can just roll down the hill into Stanford. So, <laughs> yeah. Caroline, you can just move me on down to Stanford, and <laughs> Maria, you can move back to the East Coast uh, to your alma mater and, and take no, over. You. How about that? No, thank you. And another tip for the uh, search committee. <laughs> <laughs> Their job is done. There you have it. <laughs> All right. Hey, thanks for listening, everybody. This is John Byrne with Quartz and Quants. You have been listening to Business Casual, our weekly podcast with my co-hosts, Caroline D.R.T. Edwards and Maria Wickvilla. Thanks again. See you next week. <laughs>